You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another Western Rookie Podcast episode. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and today we have a special guest. Mr. Phelps Game calls himself. Jason Phelps is on the call, and I have a feeling we'll talk mostly about uh, calling strategies for mature mule deer. How does that sound, Jason? <laughs> Perfect. That's, my, that's right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> that's right in your wheelhouse. Man, if you ever invent a call that works on mature mule deer, that would that would change the game because that's like mature mule deer, one of the hardest things to really target because yeah. they don't pattern, they don't call, they don't make noise. So we can get into a little tip we've been doing. We haven't shared it a whole lot, and I don't know if I want to talk about it a whole lot, but there's been a little thing we've been doing, um, and it really, really works if there's like a fence line or a boundary that's in your way. Um, oh, the, and you need to get them on your side. So we can we can touch on that maybe a little interesting. bit. Yeah, no. Um, in more realistic terms, I was thinking with September right around the corner, elk season's coming. I'm going to Colorado with a bow. Um, in three weeks, I'm sure you're spending a majority of September in the woods. So I was thinking yep. maybe more so uh, elk calling would be a more appropriate. Topic. Yeah, I, that, that's maybe a little more my wheelhouse than calling mule deer, but uh, I, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a I cherry picked a, a rifle um, early September hunt. Not for me. I'm gonna go help on it, and then as soon as that one's done, we'll jump in the woods and start archery elk hunting for myself. So those early those opportunities for early rifle hunts in September, man, are they magical? I drew a North Dakota tag um, four years ago. Opened up September sixth. And you could use any weapon for the entire fall. So September 6th to January 1st, any weapon, um, beautiful unit. And it was open so you could hear from a long ways away. And, yeah. and I bugled and called in a bull to, I mean, called called in a bull to 375 yards. <laughs> um, but it was I, awesome. I like, yeah. No, this is a 11-year-old kid drew a special tag um, and never killed a bull before. So I, and I know the area pretty well. So it'll be fun to go in there and you know, call for them. Like I say, you're not going to call all the way in, but call out into the open. And, um, yeah, it's just, those are those fun hunts to be on. Cause there's not a lot of pressure. Things are working better than they're supposed to. And, uh, better than they're supposed to. yeah, that's a rare, that's a rare thing in elk woods. It went better than it was supposed to, but you, you do quite a bit of those, um, where you would be like, not a guide in an official capacity, but like a mentor hunt, maybe if you will, you, that's pretty common for you, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I love, um, you know, just going out and helping, um, you know, cause we were all there at one point, um, you know, where it's like, man, I struggled through stuff and I, and now that it's all kind of clicked, it's, it's nice to go and help and maybe, maybe come up with plans that, that some people would never think of or wouldn't do or wouldn't do this or that. And so I love being a part and being able to give, you know, bits and ideas that, that will hopefully turn into success. And like I said, this one's a little bit, I don't want to say cheating, but um, it makes it look like I know exactly what I'm talking about because it's <laughs> September 1st and we have a rifle. Well, everyone likes feeling like they're an expert. And when you get those special hunts where you're like, man, 
things are going good. I'm calling in these bulls. We're getting a chance to maybe, you know, what's really rare when you go out west, especially if you don't live in the west. So I'm from Minnesota. Um, a lot of our listeners are probably from the Midwest and they go out. And so something that's really rare, I think, for our demographic is the ability to, like, look at an animal and say, mm, I'm going to let him go and, and we'll remember where he is and we'll come back later. Typically, it's the other camp. It's like, that's a legal bull. We have five days. We got to shoot. And you never yep. get a chance to maybe look at one and pass one up. And I love getting hunts or opportunities where you can really take your time and, and like savor every moment of it. Yep. Yep. And I, I struggle passing bulls still, you know, the, the way I was raised, um, you know, grandpa getting through the great depression, my dad and uncles, like we were just anything that was legal, um, was, was getting, you know, we were notching our tags on it. And so I grew up that way and it's not until just the recent past where you start to get better tags or better opportunities. And you've had to like, I've had to learn real quick, you know, all the, all the bigger stuff I had killed earlier on was just because that happened to be the first one to walk in. Well, yeah, I kind of have the same story, but all the bigger stuff I killed early on was because I got incredibly fortunate with draws, and I drew a once-in-a-lifetime yeah. take. So my first elk I ever killed was a 354-inch bull. And then it's a little I, tough to, yeah, to, it's, to, to progress from there. It's tough to say I'm going to go bigger every year. Um, and then the next bull I shot the next year, Colorado Game and Fish gave me four extra bonus points. And so I went from zero to five in one year, and I'm like, I waited for like two months because they switched up their system and their online processing website. And I waited for like two months, and I was like, this has got to be a mistake. They're going to take this back. And they never left. So I'm like, well, I'll apply for a yeah. five-point unit. And then I, I got yeah. a really nice 280, which I think is nice. I don't know. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. So it seems like with the social media craze and, and with people talking archery and elk and everyone wants to shoot a bull, like everyone, it seems like everyone, it's not cool if it doesn't start with a three. Yeah. I have a, I have a major bone to pick with this whole ideology. Matter of fact, I was answering emails from cutting the distance podcast yesterday yeah. and some guys had tags and they were asking me um, about an area that he had a tag for and what's the top end bowl and what should I hold out for and shoot? And I didn't want to be rude to the guy or insult him, but I'm like, what have you killed to this point? And he, I think he had said he either had, he had hunted elk one year before or killed one elk. I'm like, as much as like, and if it's not a, if it's not a premium tag, and, and the opportunities aren't going to present themselves over and over throughout the hunt. Like you have to start somewhere. You have to put yourself through that situation. Right. Um, you know, calm your nerves. You have to be like, aside from you, like in, in your experience, like you, the likelihood of your first bull being a giant, like I've got rafters loaded with raghorns. And when I say raghorns, I'm talking about bulls. You don't, nobody even takes a picture of because they're too small. Like where I grew up hunting Roosevelt specifically on the coast, mm. Um, I've literally got 150 inch elk that I, and that's what we killed. They're, they're four points or four by fours. You know, they've got five inch eye guards or brow tines, whatever you want to call them. They've got maybe a six inch fork and they're, you know, yay tall. Yeah. And, and that I grew up, like I said, was told to shoot every one of those every time. And, you know, uh, as long as I had a tag, uh, you know, and so that's what I grew up shooting. And then it, it made it easier. It's like, well, I've been here a lot of times before that the only thing different now is that this bull's got a bigger horns on its head, you know, and I was able to control that because I'd been in that situation so many times. Right. Um, it just makes that next step easier. And that's, if you haven't killed a bull, like I, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I would think awful hard unless you're in a, a super premium unit, like take whatever gives it, you know, you an opportunity. And, right. and, you know, all of this stuff on social media has got this idea that there's these perfect running, you know, three twenty inch six points running around in every good unit. And it's just not even the case. Like, 
I've hunted some really good units in, in some of these really good states. And man, we've had a heck of a time, you know, even digging up 320 bulls when these, you know, are very sought after tags. So they're not behind every tree. Um, and, and I think people need to, to, to concentrate or focus on becoming good at killing elk before they become good at killing big elk. Oh yeah. And I was going to say kind of the same thing in a different way, but like everyone thinks the 300 is the number like, Oh, it's not big unless it's three. And I'm thinking like, I challenge anyone that's never shot a bull before to look at a 250 at 30 yards and say, it's not a big bull. I mean, like the average man's yep. big bull is starts with a 250, 240, you know, you get a 240 inch five by five. He's got a good frame. He's got, he's got, he's got good, almost everything. Like he, he's, he's not like obviously the same size. Like he doesn't have the same frame as a 300 or a 350, but, but that's a respectable bull. And that's, I mean, I think it's just helpful to like set your standards in a, in a, realistic way of like that most people shoot 260s like yeah most people's yep. big bull is a 260 five by five five by six maybe a little a six by six and and like you said i would have a hard time passing something i haven't shot before so like with, yep, with my sure. bow i've never shot an elk so if i get a chunky looking calf come through with a nice shot he might be in trouble you know yep, yep. you know shoot what makes you happy not what you think will make everybody else happy or you know think that you're good it's i think we've gotten that trap where everybody's like i want to you know shoot something bigger right you know or at a certain level and it's just it takes a lot away from it i think um go out there have fun um well and, and the success and, uh, rates like if you I, usually if you're if you're kind of contemplating what you should shoot what you shouldn't shoot you're probably self-guided right because if you're going on a guided hunt usually you have a better ballpark in mind you're talking to your guide is this a good animal but if you're going solo, like so especially solo archery, which is really what we're talking here when we're talking about calling elk, the numbers are all over the place. Some people say 10%. I think that's maybe more so like universal elk hunting. I would say like it's probably closer to 5 or maybe even less than 5%. You might yeah. even know better than me, but the that's just tagging yeah. an elk, much less like if you did that statistic for like someone that tags a 300 plus, that's probably less than half a percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean... In, in my home state, we're sitting around four to five percent on your general tags, um, a little bit higher on special. You know, uh, Wyoming general is kind of the anomaly where they they float around that thirty percent, but Wyoming has it so dang good mm -hmm. um, when you can even draw one of their generals. Uh, but yeah, I I would say you know if you just take five per, five to ten percent as your average success, I would bet ninety percent of those bulls are what we would consider you know raghorns or under that two fifty mark you already laid out. And I would bet one to two percent of the bulls harvested are going to be above that that mark. So it's like it's. it's oh, you're saying you're like going, of the five percent, only one or two percent of those bulls are or ten percent. Yeah, yeah. So oh, so gotcha. uh, yeah, gotcha. I would say like ten percent of the bulls harvested are probably big. So when you take ten percent of ten percent success, you're now down to one or two percent of right. your of being successful and killing a big bull. And then I'm going to add another variable in or a factor is if you're not experienced the chance of you getting into that one to two percent club is because those guys that have it figured out 
and know what they're doing every year, they're more likely to be the guys taking those bigger bowls. So it's just you're just stacking the odds extremely high against yourself when and you're is, going out to specifically kill a big bull. And is that is there any um, resident versus non-resident baked into that statistic yet, or is that still? I mean, I would assume residents by like t- as a stereotype, residents are more successful than non-residents on any given state. So like the people that live in Wyoming are going to have a little bit better odds than the people that travel to Wyoming to hunt unless it's like across the so, state line but like minnesota so to Wyoming. i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna put a stat out there that's that's unbacked uh, but at least like the group that we run with the guys out west that also travel around i would say we're more successful than the in-state the residents um and okay. it's more of a we're going there to get after it like this is what we do sure we sure. and the residents have had it so good for so long like i think we put in effort now not dog i know you're I don't want any hate mail, but maybe the guys coming from the East that don't get to live in the West and, and hunt elk, you know, like when I go to, when I go to other States, that's my second or third hunt for that year. Right. right. Like I'm traveling where well, you zone. guys may travel as your one elk hunt. So I think the stats and I, I can't give you statistics. I think it's pretty comparable, like resident to non-resident for the most part. Okay. Um, that's but fair. Yeah. Uh, but I, I still think, um, yeah, when you go there, like you just have to realize what the likelihood is if you set that as your goal and uh m- you know move forward on that and legitimately pass bulls that are that are smaller than that like your chance of success is is very very slim do you this kind of makes me think of something do you watch the show yellowstone i do yep okay so you remember when uh when they're when travis is the racing horses and jimmy's trying to win money and, and Rip goes, Jimmy, there's sharks and minnows in this world, and if you don't know which one you are, you ain't a shark. I feel yeah. like that kind of goes for, like, passing elk. Like, there's guys that pass elk, and there's guys that don't. And if you don't know which one you are, don't pass the elk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the other, like, you can keep adding little factors to this all day long. Like, we've become very good at scoring bulls, but I'm going to be the first one to admit that I may go into a hunt with, like, a – let's say if, uh, if I have a really good tag at 340 minimum, like a really premium unit, mm-hmm. when a 320 bull or a 310 bull comes screaming at me, turning his head in that moment, like I've just lost the ability to count 30 <laughs> inches at time. You know, it's like so that trail camera caught up on. You look at these yep. trail camera whitetails all summer and you're like, this has to be a 150. And then he sheds his velvet. He turns into a 140 or a 130. It's like the opposite mm-hmm. with elk. Like on a picture, you can just be the perfect scientist on measuring all these inches. But when he's standing at 20 yards and he's taller than you and you finally realize how big these things are, I'd, very rarely do they – Were you? I don't – I just – I feel like if you – like you said, if you know if – you're, if you're an elk passer, you'll know, right? Like you got a yep. tag. You yep. know I'm not shooting 200s. I'm not shooting a raghorn. But if you don't know – I feel like any elk you shoot, you're going to be happy. You're going to be proud of it. You're going to have that rush of adrenaline. You're going to get the shivers and the, like that cold wave that washes over you. And, and that's good. Like, that's why we do it. Like, you're not going to be upset, especially if you're new. Like if you're new to elk hunting and you're wondering what you should shoot, just shoot an elk. Like this episode is brought to you by Steelhead Outdoors, creators of the only American made fire insulated modular gun safe on the market. That means you no longer have to convince three or four of your buddies to help you move your safe. No more blown out backs or pulled muscles and no more dings and dents to your home. They recommend having two people to lift and assemble your safe, which would make it incredibly easy because I just put my Recon 32 together by myself and I had it set up in less than an hour. 
I carried each panel of my safe into my home with just my two hands. Yet once assembled, it had the same security and ruggedness you would expect from a gun safe. They have designed an integrated door frame, so it is nearly impossible to get into your gun safe without the code, which means your firearms are always 100% secure. Before I had my Steelhead Outdoors safe, I needed to get three buddies to help me move my old safe in and out of my home, and it was always the most stressful part of moving. But not anymore. Plus, every Steelhead Outdoors safe is made right here in Minnesota from start to finish, which means you are supporting a local business when you buy a Steelhead Outdoors safe. Check out SteelheadOutdoors.com to see all of their size and color options and pick the right one for you. And use the code WESTERNROOKIE, that's one word, WESTERNROOKIE, to save $150 on your Steelhead Outdoor safe. Remove yep. the pressure and the stress. Just shoot what makes you happy, and you won't regret it. You know, maybe... Yep. And they're delicious. Oh. They're delicious. So it's like any of them you shoot. And, and you know, sometimes those bigger bulls aren't as good as the, you know, so it's like, just, yeah, like you said, just shoot an elk that your tag is good for, and then maybe try to progress the following year now that you've got that under your belt. Yeah. I think the real thing you should be asking yourself is, is not like, should I sh- wait for a 300? It's how do I, how do I set up my life to do this every year? And if I elk hunt 10 years in a row and maybe I, towards the end of that, I start getting up into that 20, 30% success rates. So now I'm shooting a bull every three years or so you just start stacking odds in a different way and eventually you'll shoot a big one. Like you spend more time yep. in there, you get better. Eventually you will shoot that big one. And the best part is you're getting elk along the way. You know, you get a cow yep. along the way, a raghorn, like you said, you're eating elk. They're delicious. Yeah. yeah. And, and just that experience for when the big one does come along, you've been there before. Nerves are going to be a little more controlled. Um, all of that. We, yep. We, um, we archery hunt every year. We've got a group. The core group is pretty much the same every year. Now it's grown to about eight people. So we have a pretty big archery camp. And I remember this this one hunt, it was 2018 in Wyoming, is our favorite spot. Wyoming is by far our favorite state because we're always general. We're never, we haven't done, we have, well, it's hard to draw eight limited entry tags to keep your group together. So yep. if anyone draws a limited entry, they always break off for that season. And so we had eight, seven guys that year in Wyoming. And we had, I believe it was either 37 or 39 bulls vocal within like 60 yards. And we had two shot opportunities and got one of them. Like it, yep. even when it goes right, like even when you get that bull in, like no one's out there trimming lanes for you. Yep. Yeah. So many variables. And that, that's the thing, like the amount of elk I can call into hundred yards versus the ones I can get to 60 yards versus the ones I can get to 40 yards versus the ones that I actually have a clear shot at. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it's exponentially cut like every step of the way. And, and, and uh, yeah, you just, yeah, I, I don't, we don't, I don't want to dwell on it too much. It's just, yeah, if you're trying to do certain things out there, like take the opportunities given to you and uh, have fun, you know, do whatever's yep, fun for sure. Do whatever's yep. fun. So on, on more on the calling. So in a, let's talk like you're not, a, a, you know, maker and, and, and businessman about calls, right? You know, you're not the Jason Phelps. You're not the Corey Jacobsons. You're not the Donnie Drakes or Donnie Vincent or, you know, you don't go by the bugler on Instagram. You're just a guy, yep. and you're trying to figure this whole elk thick hunting out. Does that change the strategy compared to maybe how you would hunt? Like, do you hunt different than you would maybe recommend a newer elk hunter call, like what this calling strategy is? Because I know a lot of people, they, you know, they take on, and maybe Corey Jacobson's well-known for saying it, but he's like, I don't care 
about every elk. I just want to find the one that wants to play that day because I just love the interaction. I'm not, I'm not here to tag out. I'm here to interact with the bull. So they, you know, it's the run ridges and bugle strategy. And I think a lot of people hear that and they go, Oh, that's what I should do. But there's a lot of, there's a lot that goes into that strategy too. And it's, I'm just asking, is that the strategy you would recommend to someone just starting out? Yeah. So that's, that's, we use that same strategy, right? I want to find a vocal bowl. I'm here for a specific reason. Right. Um, I'm, I'm trying to find that, that specific interaction. Um, for a, a new hunter, what I would recommend, and people don't like it because it may not lead to success as quickly. I, when I was a student of the game, you know, what, 30 years ago, 30 to 25 years, I'm still a student. Don't get me wrong. I learn every year. But like when I was really learning, because I grew up as a rifle hunter, a muzzleloader hunter, we, mm-hmm. we learned woodsmanship. We learned how to track elk, not make a sound. You sneak up on them in their beds or in the timber and you would shoot elk, you know, 90% of our elk would come out of the timber 10% out of clear cuts where I'm from. And so we learned that way. But as a new archery hunter, I was, I, I, I would consider myself a sponge. I wanted to know everything right. about what the elk were doing. So, you know, let's say we're, we've got elk down below us beagling at them and we can hear them kind of go off in the distance. I wouldn't just chase the elk. I wanted to go down to where they were like, well, how long are they here? Have they been here for multiple days? Have they, you know, is this where is this their bedroom is this where they're comfortable why are they comfortable here and i'm like people that don't know like i'm a an engineer by trade you know that's that's what i was um you know educated for but it's really the only way my brain works like i'm very tactical technical i think there should be a reason for everything that's going on and so like in my brain i needed to know like well why are they here what did i do back there with my calling or my approach and then why are they going over here you know so i was very analytical um and i spent a lot of time investigating when i should have nowadays i would maybe not go check them out because i don't need to know that anymore i'd go chase the elk where they're at but back then when i was learning and and it'll i'll i would never be able to replace it no matter how many of our youtube videos or educational pieces we put together you'll never replicate like what you're able to get when your you know boots are dirty your hands are dirty you're out there in the woods like trying to learn about these animals now I'd be hard pressed to tell you what I learned like in that scenario that now helps, but I think it just makes me like a, it made me a more well-rounded educated elk hunter and, and uh, not to diverge too far here, but when I do my seminars, like there's a lot of things that you can attribute elk hunting success to, right? There's, there's guys like my buddy Lampers and Brian Barney who could probably just run the elk down and and get them to pass out, you know, (laughs) so they can use like their physical fitness um, to do it. And then there's guys, me and Dirk, maybe not, you know, in the same physical realm that those guys are, but we use a lot of our, our elk calling. And then it's like, well, what do all of these guys have? There, there has to be like a similar vein aside from like a mental capacity. And really what it comes down to is just knowledge of elk. Like they know if elk are in this situation doing this thing, this is the approach we need to do, whether it involves spot and stock or an ambush or a, a calling setup. The, the, the thing that all ties back to guys that are successful is your knowledge of elk. And I feel like some of the stuff going back to what I was saying, when I would go investigate everything I thought an elk was doing or where they were at, where they were at in August and how their patterns changed from August to September. And why did they change? Like that all just fills up your toolbox of, of elk hunting knowledge. And you may be able to use that um, throughout a hunt, or it just makes you more confident and comfortable with your decisions and, as things don't go your way, you're just like, well, I know these things better, you know, than, than, 
you know, I used to, or I know more about them and I'm going to be all right. I'm going to change the decision, change my decision-making process and, and we're going to be good. Okay. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I would say rather than like run ridges and bugle, like, don't be afraid. Now I'm going to say this with a caveat. If you're hunting, it might not be a great time, but like, don't be afraid to drop into a bedding area and just see what's going on. Be smart about it. Like don't get right. winded if there's elk there and if you're actively hunting, but I would drop into bedding areas. I would go, you know, I would go to a spot where maybe I can't call from here and I won't even be in the game today at all, so to speak. Like I won't be able to make a play on these elk, but I'm going to go glass three miles across this Canyon so that I can just see exactly what elevation these elk are at, where they're eating. And, and so there's just, there, there's uh you know, just gaining knowledge. Um, and we do it on hunts. Um, you know, my Idaho elk hunt that just came out on, on YouTube last week, like we sacrificed an entire night knowing that we weren't going to kill out because we're going to be out in the middle of nowhere but it allowed us to view um you know so that would be my that's a big difference between how i hunt now where i don't need to go gather all this information versus what i did early on is i was just constantly you know learning when i was out there and i think it's just important unless you've got a mentor or somebody you can hunt with that has this all dialed in and can tell you why and what and how come and what matters um i think it's important to 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 pick up on all those building blocks yeah and it it seems like it's a it's hard to get to that level i mean when you say have it all dialed in obviously everyone is learning all the time but i feel like when you got one week a year like most out of state like non-western hunters right people from the midwest or the east they got the one week it's so hard to get to that point where it's like we know we have it dialed in we know exactly what's going on it really does take a long time and i guess the kind of the full circle what i'm hearing is like if you run ridges and bugle you're just like while you might find some vocal bulls you're really not building any more foundation or building blocks to you as an elk hunter that you know can carry you into success you know it's really like start slow and build a solid foundation so then the building can be higher eventually versus just calling it at like a you know one trick yeah like we hunt some big canyon country like i'll use my idaho spot for example um you know there's elk there you're running ridges. You might not get a response that day. Well, guess what? If that's the only tool I've got in my toolbox to, to get the game started, like, yeah. am I going to sit out the next day? What if they don't answer again the next day? Well, guess what? I'm a smart enough elk hunter. I know there's elk in here. I'm going to drop in the Creek or I'm going to get, you know, uh, the, I'm going to, I'm going to hunt. I'm going to let the, the air warm up, get a little bit of thermal up push on the, and I'm going to go mid slope. I'm going to go through these timber pockets and, and push like, you got to be a smart enough elk hunter or, all right, they're not bugling. I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend my morning hiking across the canyon in the dark so I can glass back to my ridge that I'm bugling off of and see are there any elk there. Yeah. Like there's just you have to be able to adapt versus if your plan is to always start on that ridge, um, you may just be doing yourself a disservice because you can't figure these things out. Um, you know, early on, you know, it, it's fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Sort of thing. like I kind of there's been mornings where I'll do the same thing and I do it again the next morning. I'm like, gosh, dang it. You have to stop being lazy. Like get off the ridge top. These bulls are already in the bottom. So guess what? You got to get up two hours early. You have to walk down the ridge in the dark. You have to walk down 2000 feet in the drainage and get below that bowl first thing in the morning. Cause that's where, you know, he's at, you know, so there's just stuff like that where I wanted to try to get this bull to come up to the ridge. It was never going to work. He's continuously in the same spot. So unless you can adapt and know how to deal with that and, and what your approach is going to be, then you're just going to, you know, kind of what there's the definition of insanities, right? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So if you're a ridge runner that bugles and you can't get results, like it's insane to do it again and again. Like you need right. to go find those out. Well, and I think it comes to like 
what where it where I think where people really start asking themselves what should we do is when there's really nothing going on, right? So, you know, we've had days where it's been nonstop bugles all day long, and it's like you don't really ask yourself, like, what should we do, right? You know, like, hey, there's a bugle. We're looking at the map. We think he's here. This is the wind, and we're making a, we're making a plan. Then we're doing the play and the setup, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, we've shot – we're maybe 15% now, 20%, somewhere in that range. We have a lot of – we're starting to get a lot of data because we've been doing, like, somewhere between four and nine hunters every year for the last eight years. So we're starting to rack up a lot of tags, like a lot of man years, if you will. And so, yep. but on those days, it's never like, oh man, should we stay here? Should we leave? Should we go somewhere else? Should we set, hold up? What it, when we're really like scratching our heads, it's like, you know, day two, day three in a row of like not hearing any bugles. And so, and a lot of times, obviously, we're seeing signs. So it's like, there's elk somewhere there. And last year, for some reason, this would be a great thing to ask you. We were in Montana. I had other buddies in Montana. I had buddies in Wyoming. Half our group was in Colorado. And I heard far more than not that, like, second, third week of September, a lot of people were like, I don't know what was going on, but it didn't seem like they were very vocal. So I am I fight the whole the rut moves around idea a whole bunch, or I at least used to. I don't know what it is. The last two years, um, there's definitely a pattern. The rut was very late last year. Mm. Um and I don't know exactly why. And I'm one that absolutely hates saying the rut was late or it was weak or it was this or that. But um, the rut was definitely late everywhere I was compared to where it should be. And I'm even putting it into perspective because we started on September 1st and finished up on the 28th. So it's like, and, and I know the area I'm in and it just was very lackluster. And then as, as season got on, um, you know, being out in the woods still in October, like, man, it was just cranking. Really? Um, Do you so think? It seemed to. I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you, what were you? No, no, no. I, yeah. So it was just, it was really late. And, and some of these podcasts that I've had on mine, I've, I've wanted to become more informed and understand why. Um, so I, I interviewed a a biologist, uh, Brock out of uh, BYU. And, uh, the nice thing about Brock is he's not tied to government or anything. So he can just give you the right answers. He's not speaking from a game commission on why and how come he's just a researcher. Um, the, the timing of estrus and like the health that they go into, like how their summer food um, comes on and all of this, like the majority of cows will all come into estrus. And I'm going to misquote today, but it, I'm, I'm the point I'm trying to make is all of these cows will come in within about a 10 day period. Right. And if they don't come in with, uh, if they come in after a hard winter, they don't got like good spring green up, they don't have good summer feed and they come in in poor health, it can push them later and later because they won't, you know, come into estrus until they're healthy enough. So on like a, a major drought year, um, you know, a bad winter year, all of that is going to tend to push that rut back um, more so than than forward. And do you think it also maybe this that was exactly what I was going to ask anyway. So it's it's great that we're on the same wavelength. But do you think it would also like elongate the rut if health is like an issue. So like some cows maybe come in on time because they did find a pocket of feed and all of a sudden, like when you draw this rut out, it's like, well, that's not when you really the, like, that's not the magical time in the woods because what's usually makes a magical elk hunt is when like every cow's in estrus and now yep. every bull is firing off and just going crazy and, and so I wonder if that's part of it too. It's like, not only is it later, it's also longer. And so the intensity yep. is just harder to witness. 
Yeah, he had very good data on a on a very dry, arid unit in Books Cliff that would be like marginal habitat even on a good year for elk. Um, but on the bad years in the book cliffs, the, the habitat is horrible. And he said, you can go in there on certain years where it's got, you know, the, the green up and everything's good. Conditions are good. It can be the absolute most crazy rut fest ever. And you go in there on a year where these cows are stretching out them coming into estrus over 45 days, that herd bull can now deal with these cows on a one by one basis, right? He's right. not dealing with multiples. And he's like, it's almost like a dead zone in there. Everything's quiet. Nothing's going crazy. And so, yeah, it will stretch the rut out. Um, and younger cows also um, come in potentially a little bit later because they not may not you know they may mm -hmm. they may be able to be you know bred at some point during that. So the the younger cows will come in later um, as well, which will stretch that out a little bit. I wonder if that's kind of what was going on last year, and it really makes you a guy think about what's going to come this year because you know I talked to Ryan Carter and and he out in Utah. I'm sure you've you've seen him or met yep. him and and. He's saying, like, yeah, everyone seems so excited. There's going to be huge bulls this year, all this moisture. And I'm like, I don't think that's the case because it almost killed them. Like, you know, what doesn't kill you doesn't always make you stronger either. Like, 600 inches of snow isn't great, and they got to get through yeah. that winter with no food. And, like, they're – yeah, we have a lot of moisture on the ground right now, but it doesn't help if they almost die at the same time. Yeah. So yeah, I'm really curious what's going to happen this year. Yeah, I know our, our horn growth out west is really, really good. Um, we had a real wet spring following that winter, so whatever did make it through was able to, to be in pretty good shape in spring when the horn started to re, you know, regenerate. And, and Excuse me, antlers. Nobody tell me I call them horns. I'm not that guy. I just call them whatever. But the antler like rejuvenation, and, and they, we got really good horn growth out here um, in the west this year just because we had such a, a, a pretty good spring. Uh, but, yeah, there, there are times where a bull will be affected by – um, nutrition that year. And, and there's a good example, um, of a, of a very, very big bull that was killed in Washington state, my home state last year, that was 458 ish. Oof. Um, he went, so two years ago, he was 458 the year in between he was 390 and then he went back to 458. So this bull lost almost 70 inches of horn because of the drought we had, um, two years ago. So you watch him go from his prime and in his prime drop 70 inches of horn because of what he had available to him on the ground and then is able to regrow that 70. So it's like you almost wonder like if he had a good would he would his best year have been the down year, but he just didn't get food. But that's how crazy like horn growth is, is at times with vegetation and food on the ground. Yeah. And it's usually it seems like it's a pretty easy indicator of like how healthy the herd is. Right. Like if you if horn growth is behind, you, it would be logical to assume like your cows are a little behind, the calves are behind. I mean, everything's kind of behind. You just can't see yep. it as easy as the antlers. Um, yep. And so that's really interesting. But but yeah, I'm excited for this year. Hopefully that does lead to a more intense rut all around. I mean, like it's it's tough to be an out of state like flatlander trying to find elk because we show up usually to new spots we have a couple spots we'll go back to but with like you mentioned earlier kind of alluding to when you do draw wyoming general tag it's three four years now for a non-resident so we can only hunt yep. our favorite spot every four years montana's getting closer and closer to an every other year or even every two yeah so now we're having well, to add colorado and so we're new spots yep. all the time you got to spend three four days just learning your spot yeah the nice thing is is and you may be finding this out once you've there's like, we, not to keep 
using the foundation example, but there's this like elk hunting foundation that you're probably figuring out, even though you're having to move spots, there is a learning curve. You need to figure out like what those elk in that region want to do. But once you just kind of understand them, it's probably making it easier to show up to a new spot. And then maybe a little bit, it's not the same learning curve when you showed up maybe in Wyoming first and then had to go to Idaho and then had to, it's like, you start to build on that and you're like, all right, at least if nothing else, I'm able to like maybe a little bit quicker, like reduce this to what I need to do to be successful. And that's what I found is growing up in Western Washington is a lot different aside from maybe like North Idaho, cause it's a jungle here, you know? So I learned to hunt a certain way, but I was able to like take what I knew from here and, and apply it and then like, you know, make tweaks to it. But no, I agree. If, if until you get that, foundation built um showing up to new spots is sometimes dawning and and until you realize that elk really just do what elk want to do they're, they're it's like they're not always going to be in the same spot like in one location elk might be at the top of the mountain with the goats you might go to the next spot and you're like why do all these elk want to be down in the creek bottom you know it's like but but you 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 learn some things and realize like they are where we find them um right. and and then you know the, the rest of it's elk hunting but yeah it is tough especially you know like you're saying the people who that are coming from out east that, that don't have a whole lot of experience it could be like you know days of scratching your head like well when i went to colorado all the elk were above the tree line in september and now i'm in idaho and all the elk are in the creek bottoms like if you can't figure that out very quickly where you know like you guys starting to get more experience something like me it's like well we just need to like read the sign figure out where the heck these things are at and and right. adjust well, and, and what helps is you know we cast a pretty wide net because we have i think eight people this year so like first couple days we'll probably break out in teams of two and be hitting four different spots each day and then coming home to camp and being like, yeah, there's, you know, this area was loaded with elk that people, those guys might be like, yeah, we didn't see a single track or any droppings or nothing. So it's like, all right, now we can start to dial in a little faster, which like, if it's just you or you and a buddy, like imagine how long it takes to learn a spot because you can only hit one spot at a time. Yep. Nope. You, you just hit on something. We usually always hunt in groups or partners, even if like, you know, around here, we're going muzzleloader hunting this year, you always send a, a buddy somewhere else. And if they're at a different elevation or a different Ridge, like, all right, is there enough room for us both to go there or like split apart and like, you know, and, and I think like big group success or like high percentage of success, like that's been a huge, uh, you know, component of it is that we're always able to feed off information and spread out and really cover the unit and then reduce it down to what we need to do to, to be successful is, is another great point like because you guys can cover the tops of the ridges you guys can cover the bottoms of the valleys like and anywhere in between and really just figure out where the elk want to be and uh you know adapt to that when you find a bugle on an average day not like a magical the woods is on fire day but just an average day and you find a bull and he's bugling and he's in a workable distance right like less than 800 yards right so it's like well, clearly we're going to go after this bull do you, do you know, there's like, we, we learned a lot of our elk calling from Paul Medell's elk nut playbook and like threat yeah. levels and like work, we start at the bottom and working up the ladder to kind of match the mood. Is that kind of how you still play it? Or are you looking like, because obviously you're ate up with elk calling, you started an elk calling yeah. business. So are you just like, nope, I want, I want to find like level three bulls that are about ready to rip my head off and we're going to go in hard and heavy on each one. And sometimes we'll scare them off, but when we don't, it's, it's amazing. It depends. Like if, if I've got a good read on it, I, I, and, and if I want to kill that bull or want to try, like I'm willing to do whatever it takes. So if okay. I need to, if he's just eating up cow calls, because that's what he wants to hear, maybe he doesn't have cows or none of his cows are uh, in estrus and he, he may be more willing to leave them. Like I'll, I'll throw cow calls at him. 
uh, you know, if this bull's super aggressive and, and just ripping beagles on his own, like as we're approaching, like to me, he's like, this guy's already worked up. He maybe has satellite bulls pestering him. Like, I'm going to go in and be one of those pestering satellite bulls because he's obviously running them around. So I don't necessarily, the, the one where me and Paul, I think threat levels is always something we talk about. Um, you don't want to necessarily just blow the bull out if something else is working. The one thing where me and Paul defer a little bit more is like the language, right? And, and okay. if they do this, we should do that. So, but threat levels is definitely something we we're always considering as we, as we move in on these things and as we make our approach. Yeah. I mean, typically we, when we hear a bugle, our first gut instinct is to, I mean, it's pretty timely cut the distance, right? I mean, that's the name mm -hmm. of your show. We try to like, if he's at, if we think he's at 300, which side note it's we find it's really hard to accurately gauge how far away a bugle is when we're new mountain, new year, new season. It's like, I think that's 400 yards away and you turn around and he's walking around the corner. Yep. And, and I think a lot of it was like last year we had the weirdest mountain where the timber was so open to not to properly call and not get windowed. We would have had to been in some places over a hundred yards apart in the timber and then the top of the mountain was open, but that was private, which is usually not the case that the top yeah. of the ridges are private. And so, like, we were, like, in this really weird situation where, like, the elk would go up to find safety instead of down. And that you couldn't go up. You can't go up there. You can't go up over the ridge. So it's like yep. they had just this endless meadow up there of private land where you could see him. And you're like, well, he's been on private for two days. Hopefully he comes down. And so we usually try to cut the distance and then see if we can get him to sound off again. And I would say we generally default to, like, the bottom of the ladder of, like, a soft cow call. See if he goes off again. Rejudge yep. the distance. See if we got it closer. But is, the, is your general, like, tactic to just, like, we got to get as close as we can without busting him before we really start playing? Almost always. Um, there are times, and it really uh, – there are times where time is what matters, right? If it's taken me an hour to get to where – you know, because sometimes we'll spot them across the canyon. I know you talked your example is 800 yards, but yeah, 800 yards and we can make ground quick. Like we won't call until we get right on top of them. But there are times where it may have taken you a half hour to get to location. You're like, uh, should we sound check? Um, and depending on how aggressive the bull's been, if he's bugling on his own, we'll continue to stay quiet. If we're kind of just um, walking blind, we'll, uh, we'll maybe start with a cow call. Does he answer? And then we're like, all right, sound check with the bugle, like a real lackadaisical uh, bugle just see if he answers because you don't want to stumble into him um you know especially if time's elapsed but uh yeah on on something close we're getting and, and a lot of people may say well it's not calling elk at that point i'm like well you can call it whatever you want i just want the thing to come 20 or 30 yards right. towards me like the less that that bull has to move the more likely is he's at least going to move in your direction for a shot like a, a bull that i've got to try to call from 150 yards away is going to be, I would say, and I'm just going to throw some arbitrary numbers out of it. I would say I call in four times as many bulls when I can get to 70 yards from him than I can when it gets to 150. It's just, he's that much more likely to come in when I can get close. And that's, is that kind of considering like all types of calls, like whether I'm trying to get them with cows or bulls or a challenging satellite, yep. like if I'm at 70, things are looking four times better than if we're at 150. For sure. Yeah. And no matter how you're going to call that bull in the chances of him, because you have to remember, like, unless the elk want to come that direction already, like, let's say we're not involved. What, what would that elk want to do already? He's got cows. He's got satellite bulls around. They're in this routine. They've got this idea. The lead cow typically um, is, is moving the elk. Um, he doesn't want to go the opposite direction or do what's different. So, you know, unless he's just happening 
it happens that he's going to continue to walk by you to call him away from the direction he wants to go um, is, is going to be difficult. And that's, that's what you're dealing with. And that's where you have to create that threat when you move in really close, or you have to be that cow that's really close that needs attention. And that's why we, we put so much emphasis on like getting very, very tight, as tight as the terrain and as tight as the vegetation will allow you um, to get. And that's why we love to hunt fringes. We love to hunt like ridges or depressions because it gives us that ability to get very, very close without being picked off. Uh, that's the other thing, like the more experience I get is not ever even chancing a bull seeing us. Uh, we've just learned after time, like no matter if that bull even like, you know, whips his eyes over and thinks he sees something, that bull has just become very, very tough to call in versus if that bull has no reason to look over in your direction or thinks that he sees something. So, you know, staying completely out of his sight, I think noise is actually, you know, okay. And then, um, you know, wind, you can never get in, but like wind and sight is ideal. Get as close as you can. And then um, from there, like that's more important than what call you use next any of that other stuff is, is being tight. So when, and just for like the viewers. So when you say not ever risking him seeing you, so are you talking like you're cross Canyon, you think he's in that patch of black timber and you got to walk across like maybe a little opening or, or like a lightly timbered cross Canyon. You're like, we're not doing that. Cause even though you don't think he could see us through that woods, he might be in a pocket where he's like, Oh, there's a guy walking across. Yeah. I asked myself a, a, a stupid question, but I, I, it's like, are you being lazy or is there actually a way around? Now right. you may get in a situation where like, well, this is actually the best spot for us to cross. Right. We have to do it. Um, you'll do it. But like a lot of times I'm like, are you just being lazy or can you go a hundred yards to your left, stay in the thick timber and get around without being seen. And so, uh, you know, one of the things like I learned by hunting with Ryan, which is where being physically fit, comes in like ryan's not afraid to make a two mile loop just to guarantee that he's not going to be seen or he doesn't have to cross a ridge top or you know so it's like all right yeah. i need to get i need to get like my head on straight and, and maybe be a little bit tougher and like do not risk that or there's times where you know we, we can debate this all day or anybody can debate like well can elk smell you at 700 yards away even you know so it's like am i willing to risk this wind or do i need to back off the mountain go completely around you know so there's times where it's like well do i want to risk the wind like he's 700 yards away i think i can cut across there he probably won't pick me up versus all right don't even risk that because that'll screw it all up before it starts now back off the mountain make your mile loop and so right you know being seen smells like don't risk any of that anymore especially if it's a bull that you want to target or want to have a chance at um so it's just like getting your mind right that you don't take we don't take shortcuts anymore um right when we approach um is is yeah and then just get close and sometimes the one thing that really screws with my brain is i know where that elk's at right now like i can pinpoint him on onyx or whatever mapping software you use like i know right where he's at if i have to take an hour and go around like man there's just that variable of where is he at but i think the more the more we learn like i'd rather guarantee that he hasn't seen or smelled me and have to guess where he's at than to know where he's at and have him potentially, you know, see or smell me. Yeah. So that's kind of like a little bit of a change. Um, we've really been trying to implement in the last few years, unless it's gotta be quick, you know, end of night early, you know, if there's something going on, we may risk it, but we try not to anymore. Yeah. I got a scenario in my mind that has frustrated our group to no end because it seems like it's very common and it's, we'll get up, we get into a spot, there's elk in the area. We, you know, most days, 
I would I would say over half the days we can get a bugle. Like we can buy a bugle. We might have to pay for it, but we can buy a bugle. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we'll hear a bugle. We'll get him to go. And it's a lot of times it's like if he's bugling, you know, mediocre bugling activity. See, you know, we'll try to get close. It seems like we don't get any closer. We get close again. He's still 300 yards out. And so it's like, okay, three or four times now, it's clear that he's moving. And so we're going with him, and then all of a sudden it just goes quiet, right? So maybe over the course of an hour we've moved somewhere, maybe a half mile of that 800-yard mark, and then we kind of he went quiet. So it's obviously like we weren't off by 800 yards. He was on the move, which is common in the morning. They're going back to bed, but then they just quiet up. Do you? Like, in that situation, do you say to yourself, okay, there's a bull here, and if we play it right, we can kill him? Or, you know, obviously you you love the interaction, so you might say, well, we'll leave him here and go find someone that does want to talk. But if you did want to kill that bull, would you stay on him and stay quiet and, like, okay, now we're, we're – we, he went quiet here. We're going to go to 100 yards from that spot. We're going to maybe hold up in a good shooting spot, throw out some call calls throughout the day, and then this afternoon he should stand up and pick off again. Yeah, this is tough. Like this is this is how I learned the majority of like my early elk hunting is I would play the cat and mouse game all morning long, right? You spend and it's like, man, I get closer, he gets closer. Well, I'm gonna shut up for 200 yards and try to get closer, you know. But then he like suckers you back into calling with him, right? Because he'll bugle and then you're like, all right, we're gonna call with him again, and then nothing happens. He keeps walking with the shirt because usually they're going from food to bed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what I've either learned to do is you have to be quiet and back out and try to get way ahead of them which sometimes isn't doable depending on the country you're in they move fast (laughs) yeah they move fast so like sometimes if i knew where they were going to bed like it's a i'm familiar with that herd or or what where they're probably going we would go do that we'll let the wind switch and then um you know make our way in there but uh you can we've sat on a lot of bulls midday but typically what happens is they get comfortable or they're getting close to their bed and they will just be quiet right Mm -hmm. they they all know where they're at they all know that's where they need to be what we will typically do is sit on them until night like it's some of the most painstaking days because i'm about as uh patient as is nobody um but that's those times where it's like all right let's just take a nap we know where they're at you're you're trying to be smart about what the wind's going to do and usually they always break out of their bed about the time the wind's swirling right so you can't necessarily just set up on them perfect um and so you set off to the side now we usually try to play those elk at night um in that little window that we got where they may be vulnerable before they start moving back out into the wind um i've when you say at night you mean like late afternoon the the night yeah 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 the evening hunt right when the shadows get long and they're going to come back out to feed again if you haven't put too much pressure on them um we've we haven't had great success following elk that we've been cat and mouse and all morning into their bedrooms because usually uh you know the way with the way they're walking um you know into the wind um and then they turn around and watch their backtrack you know just like a big mule deer buck up in the mountains will they're it's very hard you almost have to approach from a different angle anyways if that's your play um so what we found is you'd have to back out or play them at night is really the the two answers um that, that if you really want success now there have been times where we've dogged elk a little bit from setup to setup and been able to kill them but it seems like there's a point in your head where you're like man this is just going on forever right like this isn't just two or three setups and and the action isn't increasing it's just he's always staying the same distance um we just got to pull the cord on that one um and and try to regroup okay yeah so but it sounds like you know yeah, you can't just follow them because they're going somewhere where they know in two hours the thermals are going to switch and then we're going to smell everything behind us. 
And so on the way in, you really do have to like be like, you have to kind of parallel the herd in a way to make sure that they can't see you on their back trail. And then the wind swirls, they're not going to just catch your thermals right away. And so as you're doing that, it sounds like, you know, if there's nothing else going on, you maybe hold up on that herd at a safe look, safe but like proximate location where when they do fire up in the afternoon again, you could potentially go after them. But that's the one thing that we've yeah. always had as a hard time is like, what do we do now? Because they went quiet. We're sure they're bedded somewhere. But maybe, do you think that that herd, like if you're dogging them with bugles, they're just going to keep moving further and further because that bull is really, you know, in, in September, he's trying to to bed his herd in a safe spot. Like he doesn't want to bed by other bugles. So if you're dogging them with bugles, do you think he just keeps going, they keep going farther and farther? They, they will potentially, um, they, you know, Roosevelt's where I grew up, they definitely want to bed in a certain spot. Um, so they will typically hold up. They won't get pushed out of there, but they won't be called in either. Um, Ro- or Rockies tend to keep going more so, you know, which is what the majority of everybody hunts out there. Yeah. Rockies don't necessarily care as much. Like they'll go to their secondary or their, their, you know, a different bedding spot if you're putting too much pressure on them. Um, so a lot of times, like it, if they're in a good spot to hunt, like, that's where it's either leave them alone, maybe climb up the canyon wall or or get on a different elevation and then approach them from a different angle or from a different mm. direction. Um, you know, because if that bull pops off in the middle of the day, like that is a great time um, to take advantage of them. Or if you know pretty accurately where they're be- uh, bedded, you know, based on bedded bugles or whatnot, um, you know, getting in on that thing can can definitely work well there. Yeah, you have to, I, I feel like it's it gets to a point of like opportunity cost and you just got to do like, you just got to talk with your group and be like, all right, we're dogging this bull. We, you know, here's a big circle in the map. He's, I, we think he's bedded in this area. Like, is it, is this our, still our best play for now? Because we don't hear any other bugles. We can leave them there. Um, or we hear something else. So we'll remember he's there, but then we'll go try to play this midday play on another bowl, but we could come back to this bowl. Do you split? Like, that's always like, what, what do we do now? Do we, maybe do a little scouting, if you will, midday and see if we can find some sign on a different part of the mountain and then come back here for the evening. Um, it's always those yeah, days where it's not it's just, fast yeah. enough where you're like, what should we do now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, a lot of that depends. Like, are you somewhere where you could get back to your truck in a half hour and go to a different spot? Or if you're six miles in and, you know, it's like the ridge drops off and you really don't want to go down, you know, any further than you're just going to hang out. And so it really, you know, all those factors just kind of play in whether you're going to hang out or whether you should go scout. We're always, even if we've got elk located, like if I can take advantage of that time in the middle of the day and maybe go check out some new areas or check for sign and be back there at night. Cause I know those elk aren't going to move unless somebody bumps them. Um, that's usually what we'll do. Like, let's go pick up as much information as we can. So we have backup plans and then we'll come back and see what happens at night. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because elk hunting, like when you think of it, you think of it, it's like, man, it's a lot of work. It's hard. You get exhausted. But typically that's mostly when you're not hunting, when you're actually like on target, like on the mountain, we're at the elevation, then you're mostly going like cross elevation, maybe up a little bit, down a little bit. And then if you get into a play, obviously anything can change. But, you know, typically when you're on the mountain, like then it's, you know, it's pretty easy walking for the most part to go check some stuff out. You got no hurt. Like you don't have to be hurry and run around every place and get sweaty and and exhausted so that part's usually the easy part to just walk around and you know do a couple mile loop check out some sign check out some drainages and it's really not that hard um it's getting up to the mountain where you're like (laughs) yeah and and 
uh, I'm going to, one of our, uh, one of the things we, people, some people don't like me to talk about um, because it's a little bit of like one of those, you know, underground secrets, but we don't typically have issues knowing where elk are at because it, we, we do a lot of night locating. Um, I, people don't like to, me to talk about this and it's kind of one of those things we don't, we don't talk about a lot, but if, if I need to sacrifice a night, um, which kind of gets back to midday naps, I'd rather, I'd rather scout after dark and two hours before daylight than walk all over in the middle of the day. And if I'm tired, I'll take a nap because, but being able to night locate and scout for elk after dark is so much more, um, productive than midday scouting. Yeah, and it guarantees that I'm on elk or when when plan A or B screws up, I'm going to C or D that I found the night before or that morning. It's funny because we've known about that from the very first year we've done archery elk back in 2015, I think, and we've never done it. We every year we say, man, if if we get into it and we're losing ideas, like we need to night bugle, and then we never do it. And then it's like, no, we need to night bugle. Never do it. And it, I think it's, I mean, it's tough. When you get back to camp, you're, you know, you're three, four days in, you're tired, you just want to eat and go to sleep. And you got to, like, kind of like you mentioned, like, it's okay to, to like, miss a morning hunt if you're, if you're trading that for gaining valuable intelligence in the evening or the night before, like, at, you know, middle of the night. Because typically what we have found is afternoons are the magical time anyway. Like, yeah, we hear bugles in the morning, but we've never killed a bull in the morning. We've always killed our bulls after lunch, every time. I mean, I know a lot of people yep. are going to write in and say, I kill every bull I've ever shot, you know, before breakfast. But typically yeah. we aren't those people. And we do wake up early and we hear bulls and we dog herds. And that probably gets us into the right spot for the afternoon. But typically it's the afternoon or, the, or when it's magical all day yep. long is when we're killing elk. Yep. No, we're the same boat. Like we've killed a few early in the morning. Um, you know, things work out, but the majority of the time we're, we're same as you killing bulls from noon on, or, you know, I think late it's, morning on. It seems like the morning game is an ambush game where like, yeah, calling can help, but you need to know because they're typically moving before shooting light. Anyway, they're already headed back to their bed when the sun comes up. And so you need to basically cut them off. Know they're going to be coming by you at, you know, 70 yards or closer. And then you can start a call and, you know, but it's that I would call that an ambush when yep. you're trying to catch them from behind, man, you have to be in good shape because their walk is like a good jog for us and it's uphill and not many of us can jog straight uphill for a half mile. Yep. I can't, I don't know about you, Jason. You yeah. Do, you me, do it me, no, I, I can't jog <laughs> 20 feet. <laughs> I tell everyone if I'm running, there's either donuts or grizzly bears and you best not wait to find out which. Yep. Yep. So, I try not to run, but yeah, but yeah. So, um, that's kind of our plan. We're really excited about it. I've been busting out my calls. I do a lot of calling in the truck. I usually don't bust out the bugle tube until we're there. Cause I don't want to blow up my eardrums, but, um, but yeah, yeah we're, yep. we're getting to that point, busting out the calls and you just released the new, um, unleashed V2 bugle tube from Phelps game calls. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it kind of piggybacks on our original unleashed um you know the, the original unleashed is a great tube but some of the feedback we got was man it's it's a little bigger than i'd like to carry around in the woods and um you know maybe a little heavier and so we went back to the drawing board but i was unwilling to give up volume sound quality and some of those things and, and back pressure that you get from a tube and so we went back to the drawing board put a lot of uh you know a little bit of science into it and figured out like how do you create the same back pressure similar volume same resonant frequencies 
um, all of that. And we ended up with a tube that's about half the size and, and about, uh, you know, 33% lighter, which um, yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot. Like I've never been a guy to complain. Like well, I've got my beagle tube in one hand, I got my bow in the other, like it really doesn't matter, but it will be nice to have a less cumbersome, um, you know, beagle tube. We were able to wrap like a neoprene sleeve around this one without killing the sound. So it's way quieter if it happens to bump a, a tree or some brush. Um, it's got an integrated shot cord lanyard. Um, so it's, it's a really nice system. And if you can't run a diaphragm, it also accepts our easy bugler mouthpiece. So um, if you can't beagle the diaphragm, you can snap that right on and uh, be able to be in the game without being able to run a diaphragm, at least be able to beagle when you need to or locate bowls when you need to. That's interesting you said that because I'm the opposite. I can run a diaphragm, but most of those external bugle um, systems, I know there's a lot of them out there. And I've never, I, to be fair, I've never tried the Easy Bugler, and it, the name of it maybe makes it sound like it would be the one I could finally do. But I could not get any of those like integrated bugle tomb reads to work at all. And I'm like, man, I'm not going to be a very good elk hunter. And then we switched to the diaphragms, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, finally, I can figure this out. Yeah. I, I get this figured out. No, this one's pretty easy. I mean, it just, it basically uses our amp diaphragm frame okay. um, without a piece of tape on it. And it sits in a little cassette. And all you have to do is uh, put your bottom lip over the hole. And it, uh, we've been able, I would say 99% of the people um, we can get, like, to be able to use these things. You know, whether it's young kids or, you know, old ladies that just want to beagle an elk off their back porch. Like, we've been able to, like, get them dialed in. Um, it's, it's a real easy system to use. But it's it's out there we just me and dirk over time we're listening to our customers and just we had so many people walk by like i can't use a diaphragm do you have something for me yet and so we wanted this to be as easy as possible dirk had some requirements i had to be able to make it lip ball and be good to chuckle like realistic chuckle so we worked on how that was all gonna come together and and i think we it's it's a real good product and uh, i I I was of the opinion like everybody should be able to figure out how to use a diaphragm <laughs> and if they just practice and but it's not reality like people just you know gag reflexes just can't figure it out and so this is nice um and and the best thing is a lot of guys you know giving us feedback over the last couple of years when we released it is like it changed their entire archery elk hunting experience because they were weren't afraid to be or they were able to beagle finally in certain scenarios and uh so yeah, that that's kind of that's awesome to hear that you created a product that allowed them to be part of the game. Yeah, and one thing I'm excited about, I think I'm going to order one of your your external estrus calls because my I don't know if I'm just not using the right diaphragms, but it seems like when I hear a real elk call, a cow elk, I hear it, and then I try to do it, my diaphragms are too high pitched. They don't. It's like. The, and it, you probably know this way more than I do, you know, what I'm supposed to trying to say, but the, the cows have this, like, it seems a little bit deeper. It seems a little bit harsher in a way. Um, then my, my diaphragm comes out like too high and soft. Like it's like hundred percent calf. And I, no matter what I try to do to get that registered down lower to, that, to really come out with that more nasally, like, it, it just doesn't do it and then i um met a guy on a mountain he's like here try this and i tried it his it was just a random old external one and i'm like oh yeah this is perfect i didn't think external ones could do as much you know as the diaphragm i was just you know unaware and so i think i need to switch and get one of those external uh diaphragm calls you got sorry about that folks we had a brief uh outage network outage which happens when you have a western podcast and talk to people out in the west but but yeah we we're just talking about the external cow calls trying to get that register down and i found when i switched to that external piece 
is there something about like a diaphragm versus external that that just allows you to get that deeper nasally sound that is to me sounds more like an authentic cow yeah it's uh you know when we design externals um i always call it and i don't know if my terminology is right i fortunately being a game call manufacturer i can make up terminology right but it's almost like uh, uh that that sound you were saying at the end of a cow call it's that real sharp yeah and it's almost i call it like a ripping like you kind of rip off the end of the cow call it's more of like a a tearing it's not a real sweet sound yeah. um where we're like a mylar reed which we use on that those externals vibrate and as you change the vibration, the length of it, um, you know, that's you, usually on those external calculals, you pinch down tight and you let up. Is you're, is you're basically effectively lengthening that mylar reed is where you get that kind of changeover into that realistic calcol where when you're vibrating a little piece of stretched latex in your mouth, it's, it's sometimes tougher to go from the high pitch that you need to the, to, and so it takes a little more skill to be able to like, yeah, you know, with your diaphragm, you almost have to speak it into the call or I imagine speaking it into the call to really get that, that, um, authentic cow call. So it's, it's very well known that, uh, I'd say very well, not insulting you that you didn't know that, but it's, it, you know, amongst us call makers, it's well known that like we can accomplish some things with mylar reads that we can't do with diaphragms, you know, in the mouth. Oh, interesting. Well, I'm going to have to pick one up. One thing that I never know when I'm looking at, like, so you got, I would say we're at, you got 12 different external options and it's like, well, which one is the one I, that fits me best. And I, you know, that's where I always struggle with like, what am I supposed to be looking for? Because they all look great. I mean, every one of them you got here looks like super good. So is there like a, a, for a listener that's maybe like, Oh, we're going elk hunting this year. I'm going to go pick up a, you know, a Phelps game call external cow call mylar, um, you know, call what, what should they be looking for? So like fit on the external doesn't matter quite as much as more what sound you're after so when we talk about our external calls i would say we have three we've got an easy estrus that comes in different barrel shapes i would say the barrel matters a lot less than uh, as far as sound quality then um it's more of what you want your call to look like and maybe some durability like out of the acrylics we've got the mini x which is a lot smaller call which is more geared towards like high pitched cow calls maybe a little more um you know medium age but it's a lot smaller call the easy estrus is a lot louder and it's a deeper cow call. So it's maybe if somebody wants a real quiet cow call, it's not going to work. And then we've got our new easy sucker, which is an inhale call, um, but it uses a diaphragm. So it, it may lack some of that, that nasal, you know, nasally sound that you're talking about, but it's very easy to use. And the nice thing about the easy sucker versus other external cow calls is if you are bow hunting by yourself or calling for yourself, those have to be used in conjunction with your hand, right? You can't, I mean, you could hold it in your mouth without your hand, but it's meant to be held, right? And, and brought down, which creates a lot of movement, which when you're calling a bull and you don't want to do, where the easy sucker allows you, if you can't run a diaphragm, to still make a sound while your hand is on your bow and your hand's on your release, right? Okay. So that's kind of the three different categories we have. And the easy sucker does do a really good job as far as like a latex call is concerned on getting that nasally um, authentic cow sound. Oh yeah. So do you ever run like a, like an easy estrus with a reed in your mouth and then like switch it up so you can get that effect of having multiple elk in a sequence and and can change your pitches and sounds pretty fast? Or is it pretty hard to run an easy estrus when you have a diaphragm on the side of your mouth? No, no, we, I mean, I've, I've been doing it so long. Like I, it's easy for me to just put the call on its edge in the side of my cheek and then I'm fully capable to run back and forth. There's, 
we don't we don't run into that scenario a lot where we want to be multiple cows i would say just because of my strategy but there are times where i want to be like a cow communicating with the calf and on the externals one of the downsides is you sound like the same elk over and over and over so i can bounce back and forth like a calf can be on my diaphragm and i can run a mature cow on the egestrous and sound you know like two different elk there mm. yeah that's a good point yeah, that's the that's the that's what I'm looking for. So I'm gonna have to get one of those. Um, and then the, on the lip ball, you mentioned like the like, uh, as you said, Dirk gave you a requirement that you had to be able to lip ball through your new tube. How do you create your lip ball by like the trumpet effect with your lips, like vibrating your lips, or do you do it by like blowing a lot of air and bubbles across the latex? Yeah, we're it's all uh, lip vibration in the tube. So. Um... You know, it was one of the harder calls to learn when I was, you know, learning how to do all that way back when. But, yeah, it's, it's a lot of practice, like, figuring out how to keep your you know, lips kind of tense and tight and then being able to keep them fluttering through the call um, is, is how we do it. It's just a sputter, um, you know, and then it's getting not there not too much, like, the, the rate of vibration. Like, you know, some people see Dirk put his lips on, like, the outside. Well, then he's using, like, the fatty part of his lip to kind of slow down the the, the the vibration of the lip ball where my lip balls tend to be like straightforward. So it's a tighter, like crisper lip ball. Um, and, and, you know, we've got the ability to switch it up, but there, there's lots of ways to accomplish that. But I would say the majority of people do it by just, um, you know, vibrating their lips as they're calling through it. Yeah. That's my problem is I haven't figured out, I haven't learned how to do the lip thing. So I just blow a lot of air and it throws some bubbles across the latex that gets it to, yeah, it doesn't sound great. I'm sure you've heard someone do that before, but it's yeah, like, yeah. that's what I got to deal yeah, with. No, we do we do it on like growls or like little moans, you know, extra air and, and kind of some disrupted air across the reed to kind of give you that that broken up, you know, so it's not perfectly smooth and, and crisp. We do that as well at times, which is it's authentic. Um, but yeah, being a lip ball is not the most important thing. We just the, the system we run a lot is mimicry. So if a bull starts lip ball at me, we typically lip ball back at them and just kind of match their, their aggression and, and what they're throwing at us. Oh yeah. That's a good point. That's probably a good, yeah. uh, just all around, you know, tip or something is just like match. I, I, I call it like matching mood or I, you know, match the yep. elk where they are. Like, you know, if it's a quiet day and they're not talkative, like you probably shouldn't be that talkative either. Just get close yep, to them and exactly. wait till they wait till they stand up in the evening Versus if they're lip balling yep. at you, you got to ramp it up and uh, you got to, you know, be prepared to get run over. Yeah, no, we, we do that a lot. Um, we match the mood um, until we can feel like it turning. If we do finally get maybe on a, on a, on a slow day, a bold answer, and we feel like we're finally building some momentum, we'll kind of keep ramping it up. But yeah, you don't want to be the only quote unquote bull on the mountain, just ripping his head off when, the real elk know that there's no cows and estrus and it's really not that time to be cranking. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That is a good point. And, um, wow. I happens every time, but talking elk calling and I look down and it's already been a little over an hour, Jason, and I appreciate your time yeah. and want to respect, uh, you're a busy guy and you're probably going to be getting busier and busier by the day as we approach season. So I want to let you, yeah. Uh, get on with the rest of your day but before you yeah. do give folks a chance to follow give them the website where they can find some of these calls and the new beagle tube that you released and and where they can uh, follow along with your journeys this fall yeah i really appreciate having me on um so our website's uh um instagrams at phelps game calls my personal instagrams at jason glenn phelps um we're available on facebook both the business page and uh 
and personal page. And we're just, we're super easy to get a hold of. So if you ever uh, want to get a hold of us and, and the nice thing is it's still uh, me and Dirk that answer the majority of our, our Instagram messages and whatnot. So uh, yeah, we like to be able to take care of people personally and uh, yeah, easy to get a hold of, do our best to try to answer everybody in a timely manner. But um, yep. You can also email us to our email or uh, emails are all on the website there at phelpsteampels.com. Awesome. Well, we will put the links to the Instagram and the website in the show notes for anyone looking to grab some elk calls before season and wish you the best of luck this fall on all yeah. of your different hunts, Jason. Yeah, yeah, good luck. I'm excited to hear how you and your team do uh, out west, and uh, you'll have to report back. Yeah, we'll send you some uh, pictures with the a nice bull, a nice 250 bull on the ground with your um, you your easy estrus cow call. There you go. I like it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks right. for being here, Jason, and yeah. thank you for listening, folks.